When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, today's guest is Dan Wilson, lead vocalist, guitarist, and songwriter for the Minneapolis, Minnesota rock band, Semisonic. Together we break down the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the mega-hit single, Closing Time, taken from their second album, 1998's Feeling Strangely Fine. What a monster of a song. I've loved this tune upon hearing it for the first time, and I appreciate the track even more now after discussing it with Dan. This song is simplistic in its chord arrangement, and it's that simplicity that lets the story of the lyric breathe and shine. Dan is also a multi-Grammy award-winning songwriter outside of Semisonic, having penned hits for superstars such as Adele, Taylor Swift, and Jason Mraz. You would never know it either, as Dan is about as humble and gracious as they come. We shared a few laughs at some suggestions the record label had when presented with this song. And thankfully, those suggestions weren't taken to heart because the song is perfect as is. For all this and a whole lot more, stay tuned. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Dan, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Chris. Awesome. Uh, where Where are you at today? I'm in Los Angeles, where I where I often or usually am, I guess. Okay. Any ties to Minneapolis still, where the band was formed? Oh yeah, um, uh, very much still tied to Minneapolis. My parents are there. My brother and sister and their families live in Minneapolis. Several of my best friends live there. I, you know, I'm I'm definitely I've I've tried to stay connected to my community there for sure well i i've taken a crash course uh in in, in your career the past couple of days and to, and to say that i'm impressed is is an absolute understatement uh i've done probably at this point uh well over a hundred of of these uh of these episodes oh, wow. breaking down Amazing. breaking breaking thank you breaking and down i thought songs. i was the first one damn well you, you are you're the first one today so uh <laughs> But uh, uh, I don't think I've ever, I, I know for a fact I haven't said this, I, I have uh, songwriting envy, not jealousy, envy of of Closing Time, the song we're going to talk about oh, today. Uh, I loved the song from the moment that I heard it. Oh, I never get sick of it. You hear it at bars. You hear it at restaurants at Closing Time. You hear it yeah. at sporting events. Yeah. It just is is the song that keeps going. And then, of course, as I said, I, I've been researching your career the past few days and just the <laughs> the amount of artists that you've collaborated with, uh, writing uh, someone like you with Adele, co-writing that and getting a Grammy for that yeah. and being able to do that. You know, most songwriters, myself included, most of us have never had a hit. Okay. Right. And that's just the truth of it. I've written some really good songs. Right. Uh, as I have a lot of my friends and a lot of your friends, we never had the hit. You've had a couple of them. Congratulations. Thank you. 
it's a it's very mysterious to me because you know like all of us i have certain artists that i think oh why weren't they more of a household name by now or why isn't uh-huh. you know why isn't neil finn thought of as in a similar way to like paul mccartney or something like that you know like Why is, you know, Closey or Closé, I guess maybe she's French. So, you know, why are certain uh, festival producers not considered the the best? You know what I mean? It's just like personal taste, I guess. But people can write the most wonderful things and they don't always catch fire and become a hit. It's a sort of a mystery how that happens. Right. And, and, and you've been on both sides of the fence. You've been the performer. You've been in the band. You've had your face on the magazine covers. Yeah. And yet you've also been the behind-the-scenes guy writing yeah. for all these artists. And yeah. I've had uh, songwriters on the show that weren't stars. I've had Holly Knight on here before. Mm-hmm. We, we talked about uh, a song that she wrote. And she's had a career behind the scenes. And she's just happy with that. You've lived, uh, kind of had one foot in both worlds, which is, which is really cool. You know, I love performing. There was a time um, in my parenthood, though, that it just became obvious that I couldn't be on tour 200 nights a year anymore. And mm-hmm. that, luckily for me, that that time came after a lot of great things had happened. And after I had hits with Semisonic and I had, you know, traveled the world with those guys and, like, you know, saw basically played the tourist all over the place and just really, really had a lot of good fortune. And so there are times when people say, you know, do you wish that you were still like touring with the band or still like, you know, do you, do you regret being, you know, helping other people have hits more than you have, you know, your own hits these days? And I, and I, I, you know, I guess part of my ego, I do regret it a little bit only because it's fun to have a hit and sing a song in front of everybody, yeah. you know. But one thing is I kind of already had that. I did it. And so if I can help someone navigate through a point in their artistic, you know, journey with that knowledge, like what is it like and and how is it difficult to navigate some kinds of public success? If I can if I can be helpful and have and as as an outcome have them enjoy certain things about the kind of success I had, then that's that's kind of doubly sweet for me. I've been listening to a song this morning which relates to this a little bit. My favorite Liam Gallagher song is called Once. But oh, I remember how you used to shine back then. You went down so easy like a glass of wine, my friend. When the dawn came up, you felt so inspired to do it again. But it turns out. The chorus, the end of the chorus goes, When the dawn came up, you felt so inspired to do it again. But it turns out you only get to do it once. And I just love that. It's like, so, it's like, fuck, you know, it's, it's so bleak, but it's so great. And in a way that's like a, to me, that's like a cheers, you know, that's like, let's just drink the fact that we did it once, you know, like the, the, he can't do Oasis again. His brother says, no, it ain't going to happen. He only got to do it once, you know, and he felt he wakes up so inspired to do it again. But it, it turns out you only get to do it once. I just I just love that kind of perspective. Like you can't relive 
a phase of your life. You can only get, you can only do the next sure. one, you know? Yeah. Well, I want to expound on something you said a moment ago. So yeah. it's got to be completely rewarding and fulfilling to be able to get with an artist that maybe has this really good melody line in this chord structure, but they've just hit a wall lyrically or mm. vice versa. Maybe yeah. they have a great lyric they brought in yeah. and musically you were able to elevate that and take it someplace and, yeah. and, and become something it never could have been without you. That has to be awesome. Yeah, it's super nice. I mean, one of the funny things about like being an artist, I guess I would say, but I'll say like being a songwriter. And for me, I do think every once in a while I touch on a kind of greatness that feels like it's not really me. It's like a whole other thing that's just um, I'm channeling for the moment, you know. Or sometimes maybe it's all the things I've put together, all the skills I've kind of worked on or whatever. But, you know, so let's say I get some of the credit. Still, if I write something really great and I'm like, that was amazing, I don't know if I could ever do that again. Like, I, immediately I go straight <laughs> to like, well, that must be the last one ever because I don't even know how I did that. Like, it's all, it all, it's not like it feels random. It just feels like it's a one-time thing. And every time, you know, if I'm collaborating with somebody else, I know I have sort of a bag of tricks in a way, but mostly it's just compassion and interest and being like super into people and wanting to like, make something great and see what happens when you have those desires come together because I don't really know what I'm doing every day. Mm -hmm. you know? How old were you and what was the song called, the first song you ever wrote? The first one I can remember, my brother and I got a, a, an acoustic guitar from our from our parents for a, a kind of a combined birthday present. We were, we were two years apart in age, but my parents felt like they couldn't get us each a guitar and we'd they didn't want to either, so they only bought us one <laughs> to share. So we were up in northern Minnesota, uh, staying at a cabin in the woods with this guitar. And uh, I wrote a song called um, Coming Down the Road. And I remember it was mostly based on the fact that I had learned an extra guitar chord that sounded immediately to me like something that George Harrison would have in a song. So I feel I felt like I had like the key to the kingdom. I think I was twelve at this time. So I felt like I wrote like a Beatleish song. And my brother wrote a song the same day. He then it was his turn. He took the guitar away and came back with a song. And Matt's song, my brother Matt's song, was way better than mine. I was and I was so annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> he he wrote the hit. You, you were he, the B side. I wrote a nice album track, you know, on a, on a George Harrison <laughs> deep <record>. cut. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome. Well, uh, in in between that first song you wrote uh, at, at twelve, and of course closing time, I'm sure you wrote a lot of songs. But you know, after closing time, bef before we break into the track, you know, in 2007, uh, you released your solo debut, Free Life, on American Recordings. It was produced by Rick Rubin, yeah. and uh, the album included performances by Tracy Bonham, Cheryl Crow, Natalie Maines, and, and, and many others. Yeah. And uh, I had read that this kind of helped establish you uh, your reputation as a songwriter do you feel at that point is when you really branched out to, to write with others uh hmm let's see i guess what i'm asking when when did the light bulb go off like wow i could i could maybe do this with with other people and, and have something here well um honestly it was probably around when i was 12 because uh my parents had tapestry by carol king and we would listen to that a lot we my parents had like 10 lps they had like the the Royal Canadian Brass playing sort of classical music on in a brass band. They had Julius Katchen, a uh, pianist playing, you know, Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring and Mozart sonatas and you know the hits of classical. Uh, 
They had two Beatles albums. They had Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper. They okay. had uh, Carole King. They had two records by Gordon Lightfoot. You know, we're nearly at the end of the list. And this was our, like, our listening for much of my childhood. It was these 10 yeah. LPs. And one of the things Matt, my brother, and I did was look very closely at the credits on the records. And one of the things we noticed, for example, about the Beatles songs is that they, were, they had these credits, like Lennon-McCartney on the songs. And then one of the things that I kind of realized when I was listening to Carole King, You've Got a Friend, that was the same song that, um, that James Taylor had done. So uh-huh. I, I, it was like, wait a minute, Carole King is credited as having written it, but James Taylor's singing it on this other record. And, so, and I think that's where I learned, because we didn't have any lore. You couldn't go. There was, you know, there was nowhere to go to learn about how any of this stuff was made. It was... Sure. It was, wasn't even really a legitimate part of culture for books to be written that, you know, that many books to be written of, you know, how records get made. But that's how I figured out just for myself that Carole King wrote songs that other people sang. That's when Carole King became kind of my, my North Star of like what to do with my life. And the fact that I was the lead singer of a band was mostly because I needed to have a band to write songs for. Uh-huh. And I sang pretty good, and I I could sing the songs the way I wanted to hear them. So in order to be a songwriter and have some kind of a platform or an audience, I was sort of obliged to t- turn myself into a lead singer of a band. Right. But it was really all about trying to be a songwriter. That's great. Well, we're going to get into get into the track now. The uh, song Closing Time came off your second major label album, uh, Feeling Strangely Fine. Yes. Uh, on March 10th, 1998, uh, the single was released, uh, preceding the album by a couple weeks. And like I said, it, this song, as you know, was just everywhere. It was just... One of the one of the biggest hits uh, of that year. The song's four minutes and thirty three seconds. Wow, the intro epic. is it's, it's epic in length. It is. It is. It's o- it's over four minutes. The intro is four bars of guitar by itself, and the piano joins us, panned off to the right for eight more bars, leading right into verse number one. I got to tell you, the the chord arrangement here, G, D, A minor, and C, it's the whole thing until you get to the bridge when it goes to the B flat major chord there for like whatever it is, four bars. Uh, The simplicity of that. I so admire that in songwriting when you can strip back as a songwriter and have restraint and say, I don't need to be highbrow here. The song is what it is. And the simplicity of this track is what to me makes it work. So, so wonderfully. I mean, credit where it's due. 
When I was in junior high, I discovered Bob Dylan at a, a library in uptown Minneapolis. I would take the bus from my house, and it was about a 20-minute bus ride to this library. And that library had a, a record player and, you know, probably 100 LPs that you could take out. And it had John Wesley Harding by Bob Dylan, and it had Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. And it had a bunch of, actually, no, Blood on the Tracks I heard later from someone else. But it had a bunch of records, um, Dylan records, and not even the ones that everybody knows the best. Freewheeling Bob Dylan was one of the ones they had. And I would take them out and bring them home, or I'd just listen to them in the listening room of the library. So I became like a crazed Bob Dylan fan in junior high school, and none of my friends liked it. It was very... He was not enjoyed by (laughs) my fellow teens. But... One of the songs I really loved by by him was um, Knocking on Heaven's Door, which is like... Sure. I think it's like a... I'm gonna take this badge off me Closing time Open all the doors <laughs> You know, yes. it's, it's, it's like a... It's like a... It's like a and that song also, um, Knocking on Heaven's Door... It's not like I consciously thought of it, but it, it never changes chords. It's just a map. No. And another song that was really, really influential for me was, because of the artist, was Prince was probably the... It's probably Dylan, Prince, and Joni Mitchell were the people I listened to the most... Interesting. Until I was about 28. And the Prince song that I have to credit a little bit was um, When Doves Cry because... Not only is the the chordal structure of the song the same four bars, the entire thing, but the melody of the verse and the melody of the chorus are the same throughout the song. Mm-hmm. You know? When I heard that, first heard, heard that on the radio, the kind of, that it was almost terrifying how minimalist it was and how like, mm-hmm. what a drone it was. And that kind of, that, you know, funk drone was not unheard of in clubs or in dance music, but to hear it on the radio, something that was so unchanging and so like robotic was really moving to me. And I think that made me want to write songs that, had the the very fewest possible elements, and closing time was you know one of my one of, like I'm I'm feeling strangely fine especially there are probably like five songs where I really really tried to do that just like really dead simple minimalist kind of approach to writing. That that's the hardest thing for me as a songwriter is to be able to strip it back bare bones and what do you have there? Is there still a song there with the, with the three chords repeated? And I was amazed. I was amazed at a lot of things that this song we're going to go through, but I was just amazed at the chord structure because I've heard this song hundreds upon hundreds of times. Just the other day when I found out you were coming on, I was yeah. at the grocery store and it came on. I just I'm pushing my cart along with a huge smile on my face going like <laughs> I'm hearing the song again and it didn't even dawn on me then until I got in the headphones and I got the microscope out and broke this song I'm like oh my gosh it ha- it doesn't change and that's just absolutely brilliant after the uh, the intro here we get into verse one and I'm going to read these these lyrics uh, Dan and have you set them up for us okay closing time open all the doors and let you out into the world closing time turn all of the lights on over every boy and every girl closing time one last call for alcohol 
So finish your whiskey or beer. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> I like those lyrics. I like those lyrics too. It's really, it's really good. When I wrote it, I was on a tear. I was writing a song every day at least. Uh, Semisonic came back from touring uh, behind Great Divide, our first full-length LP. And we got a lot of good reviews and, and our fellow mu- mu- musicians really dug the record. But it was, it was not very visible. It was, it was under the commercial radar. And um, mm-hmm. I really thought it was like a whole bunch of hits. I, I thought, you know, and what did I know? But I thought Great Divide, the, the first album, had a lot of songs that would have been hit singles. But, but they weren't. And I really, really wanted to learn what it was about them that might have been just getting in the way of, of people relating to them. Like what... I didn't really want to add a lot of things that I thought people would relate to. I just wanted to subtract the things that maybe people would be distracted by, you know? Just that minimalist thing. It's like really hard to do, to, to do less. But yeah, I kind of wanted to remove a lot of stuff. So one of the things that I was trying to do was write songs really fast and do a lot of them. So I wrote like 60 songs for Feeling Strangely Fine, the album that has closing time on it. So I was probably halfway through that that path of writing 60 songs. I probably had written like 30 songs. And the guys, John and Jacob, my bandmates, had been clamoring for a new song to close our sets with because they they were bored with us doing a, a song called If I Run, which I, we, we would usually, I, I would usually put at the end of our sets. They were bored with that. So I had this mission from them to write a closer for our shows. And I literally sat down at, in the living room on the couch with an acoustic guitar and I was just thinking, okay, what can I write? Uh, okay, closing time. It's, clo- you know, it's a song about closing time because all we did was play bars. We played bar. We weren't playing arenas, you know. There is no yeah. closing time at an arena, but there is where <laughs> we were. And so I was like, okay, closing time. And I and I, I actually was just picturing the 400 bar in Minneapolis and maybe the Uptown, but mostly the 400. And what it was like when they started yelling at you to leave and like turning on the lights and you know rousting the people you know yeah and uh so open all the doors and let you out into the world i think that literally was the first thing i thought of for the song and i just loved it so much and also it had this quality of rhythmically scanning with the melody i thought of the melody and the and the lyrics at the same time it was almost like the melody had a kind of a sentence structure to it it was already a sentence even without any words and so the words Mm -hmm. came pretty easy when i was about halfway through writing it i i realized that it was sort of a it was sort of a funny and weird ass pun about the fact that my wife and i were expecting a baby because like all that stuff about like turn all the lights on over every boy and every girl and even the the lines that at, at that point i started like almost treating it as like a fun pun about bar time meets being born. Yeah, like one last call for alcohol, finish your whiskey, beer. like, hey, it's time to grow up and be a dad now. Well, maybe, although actually for, for me, that was a joke about um, getting like the umbilical cord cut, like getting cut off. Because, <laughs> you know, they would say you're cut off, man. Like, because yeah. we would, I was always in those bars and there was always someone in the group who was overserved, you know, even that word is so funny, like overserved. So yeah. they, they're going to have to cut him off because he got overserved. You know, it's such, yeah. I'm in a bar. It's, it's so forgiving. <laughs> it's such forgiving language. Oh, we're sorry, <laughs> sir. 
you're violent because we overserved you. You know what I mean? It's, it's very like, it's enabling, I guess I'd say. But anyway, so, you know, one last call for alcohol. It's like you, we're going to kick you out of the, of the womb and, you know, uh, and you're going to fend for yourself. So, so I actually, when I finished the song, I was like, I thought it was very clever by the end. I, I, I wasn't really done with it until I sent it to my A&R guy and he, he made me change one line. But we could talk about that later. Okay, well, I got to tell you, I, I love the imagery of, of the story that you painted here. I, I love that. I love, you know, the, the greatest songs to me have the best stories. And, and I, I love the setup here. And I love, I love what you just explained. Uh, verse one here, it's still just guitar and piano, but there's a shaker. I never knew this until I got in the headphones. Yeah, I yeah. never heard that shaker. It's almost inaudible if you aren't listening in headphones. And it almost sounds like there's a warbled, like record scratching sound there with it. Did you have some, some kind of a chorusy effect or something on that shaker? I'm not sure if there's a chorusy effect on the shaker or not. I know that one of the things about about feeling strangely fine was that the, our producer on the record, Nick Launay, mm-hmm. was which I wanted to talk to about. It. Did he did he mix the record too, or did Bob Clearmount mix, mix it? it? He didn't mix it, but he recorded it, and he had a way of making. It. He was very very intense. He was he was a very lovely guy. We had a lot of fun, but he was very intense, and and we would laugh. Because he would take a, a while to get the various sounds, and we would like we'd be playing a flute and a mellotron, you know, just the, those kind of um, <laughs> stairway to heaven style flutes, you know. We'd like be playing a flute line on a mellotron, and he'd be dicking around with the with the EQ until he got it to sound kind of strangely like hefty, like heavy, like how you get a flute to sound. We would be marveling like shit, like. <laughs> Nick, this flute sounds so big, and he and he would say, "Yes, everything has to sound intense and big." So with the shaker, it's first of all, it's a very, it's a handful of really big shakers. It's Jacob with as many shakers as he can hold in one hand. He might have even been playing with two hands, and so a lot of that crackliness might just literally be like ra- the random attack of all the extra shakers that he's holding, you know. There's lots more with Dan Wilson coming up after a few words from our sponsors. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not so grown up things like hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh, has impacted your life, uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe to Grind podcast. Do you enjoy the content and production of Krista Makes a Podcast? Do you have an idea for a podcast or an existing podcast that you'd like to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. 
At WeKnowPodcasting.com, we have over 25 years of combined experience in the pod field, and we're ready to help you succeed in the golden era of podcasting. And now, back to the show. I'm assuming you recorded this probably late 97, uh, early 98. Was this recorded uh, analog? It was recorded in 97. um, It was recorded, yeah, it's 100% analog. In fact, Nick had had done a couple of records on Pro Tools already. And and all the the, um, alternative rock bands that we knew on tour were, were fully digital on tour as far as I knew. But, okay. but Nick was very intense that that we stay on tape. Right on. Well, the other thing here is uh, the strings here, and I don't know if those are synths or those are actual strings, but there's haunting uh, synth parts, strings that come in panned off left on the second half of this verse. And at the very mm-hmm. end on the line, but you can't stay here before you launch into chorus one, those strings build up to like a crescendo. But you can't stay Were those actual strings there? There's two things going on. Uh, the The studio was downtown in this kind of like um, industrial neighborhood of Minneapolis on Washington Avenue. And there was a, a, an old bar or speakeasy um, two doors down from the studio that was um, abandoned. In fact, the bar of this bar was collapsed on the floor of, of, of the abandoned space. <laughs> And uh, the um, studio owner, John Cooker, arranged with the landlord to cheaply rent that abandoned bar. And we set up a bunch of um, instruments for like rehearsing ideas. And also uh, we set up a Tascam DA88 tape recorder, digital okay. tape recorder. And so we, we, we would mess around with sounds and ideas while Nick was in the other, um, in the big room working on the record itself. And John and Jacob, I think John and Jacob cooked up that initial string idea, that violin that kind of like turns into outer yeah. space almost. And then Jake, and then we asked Jacob to um, to do string arrangements for a bunch of the songs with real players. And so we got a bunch of people from the Minnesota Orchestra into the big room. And so halfway through closing time, those Mellotron strings that kind of seem like they're in outer space, they actually morph into a real eight. I think it's an eight piece chamber orchestra yeah now that that part's great i love the uh, it's a minimalist approach here you just got the guitar and a piano but those strings come in it just adds that that layer of depth i love that part when we delivered the song the the consensus at the label was there were no singles on the record oh geez even though it had closing time on it and and other it had secret smile that became a huge hit in europe Anyway, it had a lot of stuff that that got tons of airplay, but the the, the label um, deemed it unreleasable because it had no singles. One of the things they offered was if we would put drums throughout closing time, maybe just maybe it, it could be released as a single. What? So the idea that that kind huh. of like electric guitar and voice and piano verse was a source of great pain for MCA because it. They felt like people would be tuning out, you know, and like not 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 enjoying the song. That is so 
so crazy when you hear stories like that. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that where the label interjects just something that is just completely, completely wrong yeah, in, yeah. in this case. Yeah. Can you change? <laughs> can you do something really cheesy and bad? please yeah. yeah yeah can can you not make this a hit that's the, that's what that's what we're asking for here <laughs> well chorus one comes in at the 58 second mark i know I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home. Take me home. Again, simplistic. But man, in terms of what's going on here, it's the end of the night. They're calling last call. You're, 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 you got your eyes circling the bar. And uh, you know, who, who am I going home with? Who, who can't relate to that lyric? Uh, it's funny, though, because I think my band was... was I'm, I'm happy f- about my band. I feel very lucky to have had my guys... And I think we we felt alienated or distant from, I guess you'd say, the norm of touring machismo, the kind of toxic masculinity of touring life. And the three of us always felt uncomfortable in settings like that. And so we had our own little bubble of less macho kind of band life. And I think that's what led, I think, me to be able to sing I Know Who I Want to Take Me Home. It's not a very dude-like thing to say. <laughs> because... That's, I didn't think about it that you way. Take, you know, oh, I think you're the one. Take me home, please. You know, like, it's very yielding and and um, kind of open. And it didn't really match up with the, the masculinity of the era. That's so funny you say that because I, I just took this lyric as anybody's singing this. Sure, male, of course. Male patrons, it, it's every. I didn't. I yeah. didn't look at it from the male perspective. That's interesting that you brought that up. Well, though. I think. I think, I think of... at the time, though, I think the the normal voice. So you know, I was. I'll, I'm. I'm out on a limb, but you know, the, if someone said, "Okay, name all the different kinds of singers in a band," the the list would be. This is terrible, but the list would be like. Well, there's the R&B guy, and there's the metal guy, and there's the, like, goth guy, and there's the funk guy, and there's the chick singer. Uh-huh. Like, the woman gets one slot in the giant rainbow of possibilities. At that time, it was very, it's a, it was a very male-dominated, mm-hmm. you know, music world. And, and uh, you know, I don't know if everything has changed the way it needs to, but certainly different now than it was then and I'm glad of it so I don't know I'm all I'm saying is like we that that I know who I want to take me home is very open-ended and very uh yeah anybody could be singing it and I think that's a blessing but I think partly it's a blessing because I was with my guys and we we were kind of soft and open and like you know not really very macho so yeah well I and I also took the lyric at because it's you 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 said it it's so open-ended that I know who I want to take me home. I'm I'm with my husband or my wife. I'm with my girlfriend. I'm I'm with somebody that I'm going to go home with them. I already have somebody, so it could be looked at in a lot of different ways. Oh I, I yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. Yeah, I like yeah. that about this. Yeah, Again, yeah. it's it's simple, but it could mean so many things. And you brought up some things I hadn't even thought of. Uh, the drums and the bass come in on the downbeat here of the chorus. Tambourine also comes in as well. Uh, is this vocal double tracked here? Because yeah. I swear I hear. Yeah. I swear I hear. A harmony way, way tucked back. I know the harmonies come later. Is there a harmony here almost inaudible? Oh. 
John is singing a harmony in each of the choruses, but but in the first one, I think Bob Clearmountain made that harmony really really quiet. And yeah, the vocal is double. It's me double tracked. Okay, I can hear. And and Bob did mix it. Bob Clearmountain yeah. mixed this yeah. this track. Okay. Well, there's uh, another there's yeah. another mix of it. The versions of the album that came out before 2020 had a mix by Jack Joseph Puig on the album, but the single and the version that everyone in the world has heard is Bob's single mix. Right, and the single mix was three minutes and fifty-two seconds, about forty seconds shorter. But I went for the album cut here, so we're 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 getting the, we're, we're talking about the Jack. Whole, then we're talking about Jack Joseph Puig. Yeah, so we're we're get we're getting the whole thing here, and uh, yeah, I, I love chorus one because it's it, you don't get the harmonies you get later uh, as the song builds. Closing time, time for you to go out to the places you will be from. Closing time. Closing time. Time for you to go out to the places you will be from. Closing time. This room won't be open till your brothers or your sisters come. So gather up your jackets. Move it to the exits. I hope you have found a friend. Closing time. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Yeah. And I I, I love this verse. I, I absolutely love where the song is is continuing with the story here. I did listen to the demo of this song. I found the demo on YouTube. And I noticed, uh, so gather up your jackets. You skip the line, move it to the exits. You go straight to, I hope you have found a friend. Closing time. Gather up your jackets. I hope you have found a friend. Other than that, the only difference really in the demo was the very end. You don't come back to the verse refrain. Oh yeah, but uh, yeah, the the demo was really interesting. I I, I try to, uh, to to look at those, which I was going to ask you. It doesn't sound like much change from demo form to this, uh, besides production elements that that Nick introduced. Correct? Yeah. The de- well, the demo we were making demos of the songs in um, John's basement at that time. My brother Matt and John Munson from Semisonic had a, an apartment and they were uh, allowed to use the basement for recording. So they, they had a simple demo rig down there. Um, and I would come over and with three or four songs and we'd do very simple demos of the three or four songs, John and me and Jake just conferring about them. And usually, as I remember, I would play the guitar one time and sing twice and then we'd be done with that song and we'd move on to the next song. And that might be what's, that, that's the demo you heard. I love it because the idea was the idea from the beginning. It's like the, the, the suits at the label couldn't even mess it up wanting to put the drums in. Here's the idea. It really didn't change because it didn't have to. The, the only difference, yeah, adding the verse at the end, the one line of the verse at the end. But the other difference is that that line in the second verse, um, gather up your jackets, move it to the exits. I hope you found a friend. Initially, that line was closing. It was like, it was the same as the rest. It was like... Closing time, gather up your jackets, I hope you have found a friend. 
Ah. You know, it's literally, it was like the same structure as all the other lines. Closing time. Yeah. Every new beginning comes from some. It was, it was unchanging throughout. And I sent, we sent out a batch of three or four songs. Each time we would do this little batch of songs, we'd send it, send it to the label. And our A&R guy, Hans, I don't think he really was the driving force in this, but he was always like, your songs are too complex. You're too smart. Why are you showing off so much? You don't need to use all these words. Um, people don't understand what you're saying. What's wrong with you? I hate you. You know, and, and so, <laughs> so he, he got this batch of songs, which, which was probably like DND, Closing Time, Singing in My Sleep. It was like four songs that all had the same chords and, you know, no changes in the verse. Nothing, you know, super, just dead simple. Me and my whole trip that I was on of making things really simple. And he called me up and he said, OK, these songs are amazing. I love these songs. Closing time is really, really great. Can't there be some variety somewhere in the song? Can't you have one line in one of the verses that's different? from the other lines, structurally or melodically. And I was like, nah, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. I'm not sure if I can do that. So by the, by the time we got to the studio, I had thought about it a bunch. And I realized that if I did that third line of the second verse slightly different with that gather up your jackets, move it to the exits, uh-huh. I hope you have found. Then going back to the melody one last time, the regular melody would be kind of Had more impact. Yeah. So the every new beginning comes from some some other beginnings end line. The next line is kind of set up by the the chant of gather up your jackets. And that was that was one of the lines when we'd sing it live. I didn't anticipate this, but but when we'd sing the song live. The people really like to go, you know, gather up your jackets, move it to the exit. They like to chant, because it sounds like a, a soccer chant, a hooligan, yeah. a hooligan chant in, in England, you know. I'll tell you, the, the, the best hit singles, if you really analyze them, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I mean, you know, typically in a song, your chorus is the pinnacle. It's maybe considered the most important part of the song. But I could make the argument that the verses are choruses in this song. Yeah. The closing time, that yeah. whole part. And I, I again, I always research these episodes uh, i looked at the live videos and the audience they, they, with this song in particular they're singing every darn word like they're hanging on for life like it's the chorus that's awesome when the song first went to radio there was already a lot of research that they would do that the labels would do and the consultants would do so when the song went to radio it got a little burst of like attention and love from radio and there was some sense that it was a really really good song and then they would do then the stations or the label, I forget who would do the research, but they would do the research. They would do this thing called call-outs where they would call listeners and say, have you heard this song? And they'd play a, a 15 seconds of a song. And the listener would say yes or no. They'd do that for a, a handful of songs. And then they go, thank you very much. You get a free ticket to see Matchbox 20 or whatever. And uh, <laughs> so when they were first doing research for Closing Time... The station would call up the listener and they'd say, and they'd go, have you ever heard this song? And they'd play the recording and they'd play, I know who I want to take me home. And the listener would be like, no, I haven't heard that song. So it was, it researched really badly. And when our manager, Jim Grant, 
heard about this, he said, you, you idiots, you know, tell them to use the verse. <laughs> and then when, yeah. they, when, they, when they put it back in the research and called up the same, you know, population of listeners, have you heard Closing Time? Everyone would be like, oh yeah, I've heard that song, yeah. And suddenly it researched really well, but that was because Jim said, no, don't use the chorus. The title is a hook that's yeah, in right. the verses. It's, right. it's great. I love the harmonies on verse two. It's on closing time in the first half of the verse. On the back half, it's on. I hope you have found a friend. Closing time, every new beginning comes from some other beginnings. And yeah, the harmony, the note choices there are awesome. They're haunting. The placement of the bass here in, in verse two is, is killer. So gather up your jackets, move it to the exits. Uh, the shaker is now louder in the mix, panned off left. And that shaker here is really important, I feel, because it keeps the song moving. It's not a super fast song, and it keeps it moving. It's helpful when you have a song with the same riff, that shaker there. It's, um, well, that's Jacob, who's, who's drumming, but also playing the shaker. And he's funky, so he, when he plays, even the shaker in the beginning of the song, it's, it feels like a groove, you know? It's not just somebody shaking a shaker back and forth. It's, you're actually hearing the groove of the song in the shaker. At the time of recording that song and making that album, my, my daughter Coco was in the hospital and she, she, she was in the hospital for 11 months. So at that time in the studio, we all had this sort of agreement that I would come in and do a flurry of like either vocals or guitar solos or like listening and making notes to the things that John and Jacob and, and Nick had done so and then I would go back to the hospital for a while so you know some of the days I was there for like half the time that the rest of the guys were there and even less and uh that was a little bit painful for me but it worked out really well because it gave them all the chance to do a lot of experimentation without me kind of trying to streamline everything (laughs) right away yeah (laughs) my tendency would be like no mute we don't need that mute that take that out um but uh when I remember when I left, we had closing time sounding really amazing, and we, we cut it live mostly. It was drums, bass, and guitar live. And uh, I had insisted on having no bass in the second verse. That was going to be drums and guitar and piano. And um, that piano was an idea that John made up during rehearsal. That piano... But he forgot it the day after... He, and he started playing these other parts and I was so annoyed because the, the thing, I was like, no, no, this is what you played. And I, I, played, it, I played it for him. I said, this is what you did. Don't change that. It's really, really good. Don't just, it's not just <laughs> anything. It's really, it's perfect, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. So my thought was like for live, during the second verse, Jacob could play the drums. I would play the guitar and John would play that piano riff. So there wouldn't yeah. be... There wouldn't be bass, so we weren't gonna. So I was like, "Don't play the bass during the during the live take of the song." So, in the original tracking of the song, there was no bass in the second verse at all. And then I came in one day after they'd been working all day on stuff, and they and they, so uh, they played me like several songs that they'd been working on, and one was closing time. And I said, "Hey, what's what's going on? You put bass in the <laughs> second verse. Why'd you do that? You know, you, you can't do." I said, "Don't do that." And they basically sold me on it. They, they said, oh, it's, it's, just, it's just a little, it's, you're going to love it. You're going to like the way it, it, it's, it sounds. And it's, and it's not 
just continuous bass. So John can play those notes and also play the, the piano. So right. you can have your way, Dan, but we're, we like the bass. I, uh, I got I got a side with them, Dan, on this one. Yeah, I, right. I, I absolutely love it. I love the sparseness of it. It's so great. Chorus two, same exact lyric as chorus one, except those harmonies mm. are very prominent mm. now. They're panned off left. I like where they sit in the mix on here. I love those harmonies. We get in to the bridge. It's a 20-bar bridge buildup. Uh, it's just synth and piano for the first two bars. This is where we take that departure to B-flat major here for a little bit. Uh, and, and this is kind of panned off uh, to the left. And then the, on the right at the third bar, a drum loop comes in with a really cool tambourine accent. Mm-hmm. And then there's this swirling chorusy effect that's moving around. It's like almost like a, a backwards sound. Is that what you were speaking with earlier with the synths, the strings? That was one of the effects that they that John and Jake and Nick put on the Mellotron strings. And but then we had a real string section play along with that melody for that section. After that twenty uh, bar buildup, there's a sixteen bars of a kind of an octave guitar solo. It's not like this you know, crazy rock, uh, you know, super fast, uh, cheesy guitar solo. It's just kind of subtle in there over the same chord arrangements. that come about and did you did you think of going somewhere even further than the bridge here with that or was it just kind of the same because of course on the demo it was the same i can't remember in the demo does it if it goes back to a chorus after the after the bridge but i think the guitar solo section came in rehearsal before the recording sessions we were working in that speakeasy next door for our rehearsals and john and that's the place where John came up. There was an upright piano in there, and that's where John mm-hmm. came up with the piano riff on the song. But also, we were trying to figure out the the general structure of the songs uh, for for just for live tracking. And I, I remember when we did the solo, I wanted it to be really melodic. I didn't want it to be... Because I had decided that me kind of scronking around on blues scales was one of the distracting things that people didn't relate to when they heard our songs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was not really that much of a sacrifice for me to not scronk around on blues scales, you know? And so 
I, that was one of the things we didn't do that much of on Feeling Strangely Fine. A couple songs, like, she's got it all worked out. And there's a couple. I mean, the part here, bow, now, 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 that the guitar's doing, it's so simple, but I, it's perfect for this part. It's like, to me, it's a little bit like... Um... It's a little bit like um, In My Life by the Beatles. Yeah. You know that... It's a little bit like uh, the 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 solo in closing time. I just wanted to keep it really simple. And once we once we got a fuzz factory from Zvex to get that nasty zipper unzipping sound on the guitar, we it was we didn't need a lot of notes. It sounded so weird and great. Yeah, no, it's it, it's great. And now this next part. Is this what we would call verse three here, or is this a post-bridge, uh, <laughs> post-bridge uh, part? This when it comes back to the to the closing time lyric there. What what would you call that? Closing time, time for you to go out to the places you will be from. I call it verse three, and it's just a quarter of the length of all the other verses. Fair enough. We'll, we'll go with that. The lyric is closing time. Time for you to go out to the places you will be from. There's no piano here. The piano's missing from this part. It goes on for eight bars. And then there's four bars after that of just a kind of a synth holdout. It's really suspenseful mm. before we get into chorus three. And uh, this lyric here, I love that line, to the places you will be from. Yeah, I, I like that line too. Yeah, it kind of gives you something to ponder. You know, a lot of the comments we got about the song were so funny because a lot of them were like, what is so melancholy about being in a, you know, in a, in a club at bar time, you know, <laughs> what's your problem? <laughs> but that was, to me, that I think that line referred to um, being born, you know, it's, you're going to go out from the womb into the place you will be from, like you're before you're born you're not from anywhere when you when you're born you're from minneapolis you know you're now you're from a place you're you're yeah you've landed on earth you're in the place you will be from and you'll always be from minneapolis from here on you know that's kind of how i heard the line that that whole that whole stretch that whole period um after that song i mean after that line that sort of stretched out long elongated bar of Mm-hmm. swirling sound was created by the mastering engineer no kidding it was already mixed it was already it was just it was in time it was like places you will be from two three four i know who and she was given the kind of impossible task of stretching that bar into two bars it's great. It's I would amazing. have never thought that that was done post. Yeah, what the you creativity guys came up never with. stopped. It was because of a, a friend of ours named Karen Glauber said, "Can, can she heard of a, a, a mix of the song and she said this is so great, but can you do that thing that Bob Clearmountain does on his songs, like with Simple Minds, where he takes a pause and makes it really long." Yeah. And I was like, well, it's kind of out of Bob Clearmountain's hands right now. And 
And Karen said, oh, he must have some way he could make that pause. It's, he does it in a lot of songs. I'm, I'm like, I don't think he's the one who makes those pauses long, actually. <laughs> but That is, aw- that we, is awesome. We had, the, we had the mastering engineers do it instead. That's very cool. Well, chorus three is a only time you get a double chorus in the song. I know who I want to take me home. Uh, well, all the lines are, are exactly the same as the other choruses, but the first half, there's harmonies on every line. I love the second line here. I know who I want to take me home. The lead vocal melody changes there. Oh, yeah. I know get that same lead vocal melody line on the second half on the second line as well halfway through in this one the intro piano comes back in that that haunting piano part that we were talking about it's panned off right it's not super loud uh, and at the end of each line on home that octave guitar solo hook comes in there at the end you're getting that again that you had uh post bridge there in the solo which which i love at the very end here there's a killer bass run that's locked in with the drum fills that happens before we before we go into oh yeah 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 it's great It's heavy. In, a, in an otherwise song that's not, I wouldn't really characterize as heavy. That part's just so locked and so good. A lot of the song is like John and Jake, the rhythm section, they're kind of power in check. You know, they're, they're like, they have all this kind of power that they can do, but they were just like holding it in check and throwing down the song, right? And at that one moment is like, almost like they're kind of pulling back the, the curtain and showing you the the power that they can bring to the party but you know what i mean it was like here's what we could be doing you know and then it's and then it was over right after that you know no the part's great and then uh, right after there's a 12 bar what i'm calling a musical interlude where the piano is panned off left and that octave guitar solo is now with the piano they're both louder in the mix they're just kind of kind of hammering you there yeah and now we get into the outro, which, as I mentioned earlier, Dan, uh, is not on the demo. It's not there. It just ended with Take Me Home. Right. kind of fizzle, fizzled out. Closing time Every new beginning from some other beginnings end. Closing time. Every new beginning comes from some other beginnings end. So we get that lyric again that was in verse two at the back half of right. verse two. Right. It's just you here. There's no harmonies. Right. Uh, and it's just guitar panned off left and that piano panned off right like the intro. And the song ends 
on the C chord, which I call that a suspense because it does not resolve to the root G. I didn't really remember that. I didn't remember. Wait. Or am I hearing that wrong? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. Sometimes I tell people something they don't, they don't know about their songs. Other times they school me. Which will it be here, Dan? Jeez, I, I, I suppose it is kind of a... Yeah, it leaves you hanging. It, I call it the cliffhanger, the suspense chord. I, lo- I love that. That's now one of I my really go-to like tricks. the song. Now, finally, I really like the song. <laughs> yes! The last chord is unexpected. Yeah. That's, that's probably something the label would have wanted us to fix, too, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's got to resolve all happy yeah. back on G. You can't let him hang it. <laughs> well, um, I, I, I got to say, uh, but before we break here, uh, again, one of my favorite songs. Oh. I, 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 I love this track, and I was so honored to, to be able to talk to you about it and, and break it down. You know, you had written like 60 songs for the record, as you mentioned. Yeah. And this was just, a, at some point, a, another one of the bunch. Right. Out of all the songs, when you had the final mix back, you're cruising around in your car, you know, you're getting chatter from the label, the A&R guy has, has his opinion, you know, your wife maybe has her opinion, your friends, whomever. Did closing time stick out to you? You're like, there's something here, this is special. Did you know it then? Um, well, I didn't know that it would be like a life-changing, you know, or game-changing thing for the band. Um, but I was really looking on the whole record as like, Number one, it was a respite from the ang- anxiety and agony of my daughter being in the hospital for that year. So in a way, it was it was not it wasn't it wasn't escapism because I was very very serious about it. But it was definitely a refuge from that painful phase of of our lives. And then secondly, I I was thinking of the whole record as like a just a crazy art project because the album before I thought was like a whole bunch of hit singles and we really like. I don't know. I, I, I didn't think, oh, we're going to be stars and we're going to be millionaires. I just literally thought we're going to have, you know, there's going to be hits on this and people are going to really dig the band. And what happened was people dug the band and it went really well on the previous album, but none of the songs were hits. And so I was like, OK, I'm not going to go into the next thing with that kind of attitude. Like, I'm not going to be, oh, we're going to be huge now or we're going to like, we're going to just do it. We're going to write smashes. You know, I, I literally was thinking, OK, this is going to be just a really artful record this will be our like abbey road with like songs that are you know have orchestras in them and constructed in the studio and like you know just just allow ourselves the latitude to just be really really artful and so i didn't really think it was going to be like a commercial smash at all when when the time came to release a single or choose one i remember my wife diane and i had a conversation about it and we listened to the whole record and she said, it's time for you to go big. And I was like, okay, but what does that even mean? I don't know what that means. And she goes, well, <laughs> to her it was obvious. Like, I, I, I thought that the single was a song called Never You Mind, which I think could have been like an alternative rock m- medium hit, I suppose. I, I believe you know me well. that's the one I thought was the one and I said she said well it's time for you guys to go big and I said well but I know but like <laughs> what would that entail like what <laughs> tell me more and she said well it's got to be the single has to be either secret smile or closing time and because those are the songs that are going to go big and so you just 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 go for it don't don't be coy don't don't release a less good song first 
Just, yeah. just do one of the the best two songs first. And so when when I talked to Nick Launay about that, I, I said, well, Diane and I were talking, and nobody likes to hear, oh, I was discussing yeah. with, this with my <laughs> wife. and But, but, but um, Nick and I were talking about what would be the single, and he thought Never You Mind was the single, too. And I said, well, I was talking to Diane, and she knows more about my music than anybody, and she says it's closing time. And Nick said, oh, no, 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 no. Closing time is for the punters, he said. <laughs> and like in England, the punters are the the bar-going kind of average people. Just yeah, the everybody. Your average fan. Just the everybody, the fans. Yeah, the football fans. Yeah. And when Nick said that, I had almost like a revelation. I was like, yeah. Yeah, this song is for the punters. That's actually... Amazing. He meant it derogatory, but you, you you took that as yeah. I know this 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 could go big. I think he was like, you guys are too smart for that. You you know all the stuff that Hans, our A and R guy, hated about us were the things that Nick loved about us. And so Nick was like, no 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 no, don't do closing time that dumb song. Do something smarter. Like never you mind. But I never thought that closing time was dumb. So I I I, I was not really moved by the argument that it was. It wasn't smart. I actually always thought it was a really smart song. That's awesome. Well, I absolutely love it. And again, thank you so much for taking the time. And before yeah. we leave, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? What's going on? I, I understand you have a new EP coming out called Dancing on the Moon very soon. And yes. Anything else you'd like to talk about? Let's what do you see. Got? I got, um, yeah, the Dancing on the Moon EP uh, comes out shortly or um, by this time, maybe it's out uh, already. And I don't know. It's one of my favorite uh, recordings I've ever done. And I'm especially the title song dancing on the moon i think is 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 really really great if it is real why does it feel like we're living it dancing on the moon venus and mars for an And then I'm also um, working on uh, new songs with Semisonic. We put out an, an EP uh, in 2020 that went really, really well, and we were so happy about it. But maybe if we put out another batch of music next year, um, we'll go on, be able to go on tour for that. So, yeah, my new Dancing on the Moon EP is is exciting for me, and doing music again with the guys has been really fun. Awesome, man. Well, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Cool, Chris. Yeah, it was nice to talk to you, and I love I love your chart of the song. That's really great. Also, you mentioned some things about it that I had totally for, lost track of or forgotten. It's really cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Talk to you soon. I hope you all enjoyed that amazing conversation with Dan Wilson, but don't go anywhere. There's lots more Chris to makes a podcast after a few words from our sponsors. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. 
Find Yourself, the new single from Punchline, is out now. All leader, all follow, I just want to get there. If anyone knows better, then please show us out of here. I'm not saying I know, but I see the next step. If that's all we can get, then it's better than zip. Listen to Punchlines, Find Yourself on Apple Music, Spotify, and everywhere you stream music. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Among Legends from Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, featuring Sarah on the drums, Cameron and Tyler on guitars, Anthony on bass, and Mitchell on vocals. You can find their music on all the streaming platforms. Here's a snippet of their song, Come Up Swinging. Chris and Chris. Chris, I think that was one of my favorite episodes. Man, uh, it, it's up there for me. What an honor to talk to Dan. Like I said, I was kind of kind of starstruck today a little bit when when he came on because I've been researching him. I had no idea what he did outside of Semisonic. How 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 would you know? He's he's a behind the scenes songwriter and color me beyond impressed. I mean beyond closing time being a giant hit, and Semisonic had some other hits too. But he is also one a song of the year Grammy and an album of the year Grammy with completely different artists. Like in the past decade, you could not ask for a better person to come on a songwriting podcast than Dan Wilson. I thought that was so cool. No, he's, he's a song doctor. He's a guy in a band. He's a songwriter in a band. He's, he's a little bit of everything that we, that we've had on this show. You know, someone like you, the song he co-wrote with Adele, it's the most downloaded single of all time in the UK. (laughs) <laughs> think about that. The the Beatles are from the UK. Like, think about uh, yeah. that. Yeah, El- Elton John, the Beatles, Oasis, uh, Radiohead, Queen, I mean, uh, Led yeah, Zeppelin, <laughs> <laughs> and the guy that was just on the podcast. He, uh, yeah, has the most downloaded song of all time in the UK. That is pretty amazing. There's so many things he talked about in this episode on a smaller scale that I thought were so cool. One of the things that he said early in the episode that I related to a lot, he was like. Yeah, my parents had 10 albums. I feel like that's how my parents were. They didn't have like a lot of albums. They had like, you know, a John Lennon album, an Anne Murray album, (laughs) you know, like uh, he brought up Tapestry. That was one of the albums Uh that that my parents had. And as soon as he brought up Carole King, I'm like, yeah, of course you would be influenced by Carole King. You're a person that writes songs and writes songs with other people. And that's what she was. Yeah. And you want to talk about relating to him on a lot of levels, but one of the early things he said in the episode was how he would just study the liner notes. How many times have I talked about that? I mean, my useless knowledge that I call it. And uh, just, you don't realize though, he he didn't realize then how that would benefit him later, much like it benefited me. It, It was on the surface, useless knowledge, but it wasn't. He was learning. I was waiting for you to say, hey man, me too. We're the two people ever that did that as kids. <laughs> but 
but you you showed some restraint and i respect that chris but i think you two are the only two that studied the liner notes i, I don't know anyway the other thing he said dealing with like being a kid and getting into music that i related to is he said he would check out records at the library did you ever check out le- records at the library as a kid chris I did, and I never gave them back, uh, which my, my mother ended up wanting to kill me later on. But yeah, I would check out records. I would also listen to them there. Uh, I, I did a couple of times. That was before I had uh, lawnmower money that I could go spend on, on cassettes or whatever, you know, for mowing lawns. But but yeah, I, I did a couple of times. Right. I remember checking out Weird Al albums at the Manesson Library. I still remember <laughs> that. I remember th- that's where the first place I ever heard the Yoda song, you know, the Weird Al Yoda. <laughs> I thought it was cool that he got into and Chris, I, I, this has happened in the past month when you're at the bar and they turn on the lights and, and they're like ready for, all right, you gotta go. That's the worst. Yeah. That is the worst. And to write a song now, he had a sort of double, maybe even a triple meaning in this particular song, but to capture that feeling of like, oh God, I gotta I gotta go out into the world now in song. I mean, this is the one song that I think captures that. Yeah, and he was talking about the chorus, the lyric, I know who I want to take me home. And he had brought up some things that I never thought about it, the, the meaning behind it. And I gave him some things that he never thought. And the lyric is so, again, not in a bad way. This isn't a four-letter word, but the simplicity here, and not only that lyric, but the chord arrangement is what, to me, makes this song special. That Those lyrics alone, how simple they are, they could mean so much to so many people. You've heard that line a thousand times that you've heard this song. So your takeaway of that is you're looking around the bar and you see that person or whatever, you want them to take you home. That's what you took away from that line, right? It's one of the things I took away, but it wasn't just me. It was it, it was all the people in that bar or right. that sporting event or whatever was whatever was ushering you out. The cattle call at midnight, whatever that was, I, you know, it could be anybody saying that lyric. That's what I meant. That's that's what I thought. When I yeah, every time I ever heard this song, when it got to that line, what I took away from it was regardless of where you were, that one person that you love or whatever, you want them to take you home, even if they're not in that bar like Mm. there's all these people in this bar but i know who i want to take me home that's what that line always meant to me or what i interpreted it as but that's what's genius about a great song like this man so many different meanings you could take away from it yeah, and I had told Dan, I you know, how many times I heard this song, hundreds upon hundreds of times, just heard it as most recently in the grocery store a couple days ago. And this song, I never realized that the chords didn't change except for that small part in the bridge because of the way the instrumentation is here. The just the little the little nuances, that piano part, that hook that happens, the way the guitars are played and offset, and just, you know, where the bass is sporadic and the verses, those things make you forget it that you're hearing the same root notes over and over again. Those little pieces that come in and out. I had no idea till I sat down with a guitar and went, dang, this thing's just the same four chords. It's genius. And yes, listeners. I did ask Dan off mic after they were done with their conversation about the song if he had seen the Office episode where they sing closing time. Hey, everybody, it's closing time. You don't got to go home, but you can't stay here. Close 
closing time. Every office needs an end of the day tradition. Something to tell you the day's over. Otherwise, you go home and the night just feels like more day. It's weird. Closing time. W-R-K. One last call for our boss. Oh, my boss is singing closing time. Maybe that's what you're hearing. Come on, Pam. Closing time. Time for you to go home to the places you will be from. Let's see. Andy has been manager for 105 days, which means I've heard closing time 105 times. Still don't know the words. And when I was home and home and home. I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home. Take me home. You know what, fine, I try to start fun traditions for you guys, but if you don't want to sing, no traditions. Closing time, every new beginning. I never heard that song before, and once I heard it, I did not care for it. But that song means it's time to go home. Now, it's my favorite song. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Good night. He had a funny story about that and how he had met Ed, the actor who plays Andy Bernard in real life. And that was really cool. Um, (laughs) Dude, overall, amazing episode as always. But I thought this one was a little extra special. Absolutely. And I didn't even get into this because, gosh, we just we, we talked for so long and it was such a great conversation. But he's written with some Krista Makes a Podcast alumni, Kay Flay and Brian Fallon. I did not know that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez, man. Full circle over here on Krista Makes a Podcast. Full circle. Absolutely. And uh, before we we have a little closing time here, Chris, we got a few other things we'd like to talk about. Oh, that's right. We got to tell everybody about the Chris Demakes a Podcast supporting cast. Yes, if you enjoy this show and you want more amazing episodes like this, if you want to see it continue to go on in perpetuity forever for all the rest of time, head to ChrisDemakes.com for the cost of a cup of coffee per month. You can get bonus episodes of The After Party, a whole back catalog of those episodes, and most importantly, you can support the podcast that you love. Absolutely. We appreciate your support. Again, that's ChrisDemakes.com. Head over there to sign up if you haven't already. We really appreciate it. And give me a follow on Instagram at LessThanChrisD. want to thank this week's guest, Dan Wilson, for sitting in with us, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everybody. If you like Chris Demakes a podcast, I'm going to assume that you like music podcasts. And if you like music podcasts, check out One Hit Thunder. Each week, we dive into a one-hit wonder, and along the way, we gain some knowledge and have some laughs. Lou Bega, Crazy Town, Harvey Danger, The New Radicals, Aha. We're over 100 episodes in now, and to paraphrase the great Matthew Wilder, nothing's going to break our stride. Subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com.